Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i am a young warthog i am a young warthog I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a little Aussie mouse running around in the bush trying to solve a bit of a friggin' mystery with the help of a couple of bloody legends from the Rescue Aid Society as we watch through 60 films and counting. I'm sorry, just to warn you, one of the only accents I can vaguely do is an Australian accent because I have genuinely watched like 80 hours of Married at First Sight Australia, so that might come to play a little bit in this episode. Your ears have been warned straight away. Thankfully, though, I am joined by the Golden Eagle of Animation Academia, a skybound legend whose majesty is rivaled only by his razor-sharp talons. And no, I don't know what any of that means, but I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam... How are you feeling about that intro this week? Yeah, thought it was quite good, mate. Thought it was bonza. <laughs> I can't do an Australian accent at all. I can say one was wallaby. That's pretty That's good. That's the only word that I can do. And might, again, come into play in this episode. Maybe? Is there a wallaby? I can't remember. There's bouncy marsupials. I'm not saying they're all the same to me, yeah. but they're all of a similar <laughs> genre. But before we kind of get too stuck into things, we have one thing that we didn't talk about on our Little Mermaid episode, and I got a text from my brother to chastise us for not talking about this. We spoke about Under the Sea for a long time in that episode, and the thing we didn't discuss was the Simpsons reference, Homer Simpson singing, Under the sea, under the sea, there'll be no accusations, just friendly crustaceans <laughs> under the sea, which is... A top 10 all-time Simpsons moment. I'm gutted we didn't bring it up. I had forgotten about it until you just mentioned really? it. But um, I think there probably was a time in my life where I'd seen that episode of The Simpsons more than The Little Mermaid. So that, that kind of became what Under the Sea was. I was surprised when Sebastian wasn't singing about sexual harassment allegations in The Little Mermaid. But um, since then, the originalists supplanted it and I forgot that that existed. But thank you for correcting the record. I think we had that episode on a video, so it was on like heavy rotation in our household, which is why that is just going to be forever lodged in my brain. Apart from when we recorded a two-hour podcast about it, Sam, isn't that how this thing works? And just before we bring in our special guest who is about to make her entrance, just got to mention we're getting ever closer to our live show. We are performing at the London Podcast Festival on the 11th of September at 2pm, King's Place in London, talking Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I still haven't watched it yet, I'm going to watch it 
after we've recorded this episode. Sam, we're getting closer. How are you feeling about the live show? Somewhat frightened. <laughs> no, no, I'm not frightened. I do this all the time. I lecture to large groups of people all the time. It's just, in this case, they've paid... I was going to say, in this case, they've paid money to come and see me, but my students have paid nine grand to watch me do it, so... <laughs> Actually, they're getting a massive discount. If you buy tickets to this, you're getting a massive discount on one of my lectures. And the key thing Sam just said was packed room of people, which is really what we want to see. So please do go and book tickets, kingsplace.co.uk. £9.50 a ticket. It's going to be a lot of fun. We would love to see your lovely faces there. And you get to see our faces and see if you think they're lovely or any other word to describe us. We don't mind. As long as you pay and come see us, we would love that so much. But... Okay, we've got everything else out of the way, Sam. Now we can get around to the fact that we are not alone this week. For the very first time in the Renaissance era, we're joined by a very special guest. She is a stellar fellow film journalist who's worked everywhere from The Telegraph to Film 4 and the BFI and all sorts of places. She's one of the co-hosts of the Pilot TV podcast and now my colleague at Empire. She's news editor on the magazine. She's so smart and agile, there's a strong chance she really is in the Rescue Aid Society. Straight out of Swindon, it's the one and only... Beth Webb. Hello. That's a lovely introduction, isn't it? And I would give anything to be a voluntary member of the Rescue Aid Society. They're really, truly doing the Lord's work. So, yeah, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Beth, do you want to do an Australian accent? Absolutely not, Sam. But thank you so much <laughs> for asking. See, seeing as Sam's already like thrown out, let's be honest, not a great one. I would feel like there's there's ground for yours not to be good. G- g- give us a little bit of something. I'm not going to try and do one from the film because I love the film too much. But there's an episode of Flight of the Concords where Jermaine dates an Australian girl, which him being from New Zealand causes kind of a rift. And the woman is Australian and she's talking to Murray. He's played by Reese Darby in the show. And she says, uh, oh, people say I sound like Marilyn Monroe. And he goes, what? And she's like, yeah, like Marilyn Monroe. And Murray goes, yeah, if you squint your ears. <laughs> so that's my oh, one God. nod to Australian culture. I'm Not so only sorry. did we get a little bit of an Aussie accent from you there, we also got squint your ears, which you're going to have to do, listeners, for all of our Australian accents if they come back out again. <laughs> I mean, we've already had more Australian accents than the rescuers down under. So. <laughs> that's very true, and that's something we'll get to in due time. But first up, Beth, what is your history with Disney movies? Which are the ones that you grew up on? Which are the ones you watched as a kid and had on VHS? Where does your journey with Disney begin? Oh, man. I mean, super early for me, to the extent that my first trip to the cinema was actually to see The Little Mermaid when I was, like, too young. Like, too young to be going to the cinema. I was definitely two or three. And we went to the cinema that would become my kind of go-to cinema for the first 15 to 18 years of my life so that was the first film I ever saw in the cinema wow presumably you were a little bit young for flotsam and jetsam the horrifying eels the moment where ursula kind of bursts out of a woman's body on a ship it's pretty intense it was horrifying i still find it horrifying today and i'm pretty sure i found it horrifying as a as a tiny child my dad steve webb who has a long-standing relationship with Empire and Pilot TV podcasts was a film journalist for a very long time so it meant that I would go along with him to screenings of films and obviously being a being a small child Disney screenings were always the best ones so I was very lucky that I got to go and see stuff like that so yeah that was an early one 
VHS wise, one of the first, one of the very first films I saw was Robin Hood, which remains one of my absolute favorites to this day. And I had a real trigger, like a laugh trigger at the part where hiss, hiss is in the ear of King Richard the Lion. There's an ongoing bit that his little tongue sort of tickles the ear of the lion and King Richard says, stop hiss, stop hissing in my ear. And that always used to like set me off as a kid. It's Prince John, I will say. I have to do a, a well actually. I'm sorry. I can feel Sam bursting <laughs> to say, just so you know, Beth, Sam literally has a very expensive action figure of Prince John who came with a Sir Hiss. This is a particular obsession of Sam's, so I don't think anyone would blame you for getting those names wrong. This is Sam's weird okay. obsession with this character. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a very early memory to the extent that we have like a childhood video of me sat in my high chair, like laughing to that bit specifically. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, it really got me. I mean, as of many childhoods, they, they tend to be pretty formed by watching Disney films. So yeah, I'm pleased to be here talking about them. And what about now then? Because we work in film stuff every day. We see a lot of Disney things now. What are the ones that mean a lot to you now? And which ones did you come to later in life? It's funny, isn't it? It's funny coming through and, and growing up and looking back with the gift of hindsight and kind of seeing things through a very different lens, especially seeing the films you grew up on. And just there's that great skit, isn't there, in Wreck-It Ralph, where there's where's the princesses kind of owning up to the problematic kind of storylines they had to see out in the films. But oh, I'm going to be controversial and say I actually prefer a lot of Pixar, Pixar films. Ooh, okay, well, we do talk about Pixar a fair bit on this show. Okay. What, what, so what Pixar films uh, have stuck with you over the years? Oh, man, each and every one, <laughs> basically. Nemo is a big one. Nemo is a big hitter. Wally as well, which has some common strands, I feel like, a little bit with Rescuers Down Under, like a real kind of message about environmentalism and, and caring for the planet and things. So that one has been an awful lot to me. Yeah, those are probably the two that stick out. More than animation, I'm sad to say that I've moved away from Disney animation a little bit in later years. Like, I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head, partly because I'm also extremely tired, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the last Disney animation was. It was Encanto. Did you see Encanto? Oh, I did really like Encanto. Encanto was, was enormously good fun. Probably the last one I really, really, truly loved was Lilo and Stitch. With those beautiful... I don't know if they were hand-drawn or not, but they looked hand-drawn, those like backgrounds and the Hawaiian roller coaster ride and things I thought was just wonderful. I'm a big Studio Ghibli fan as well, so anything that kind of has a nod to, to Ghibli or makes me think of Ghibli films instantly has like a big spot in my heart. The hype for Lilo and Stitch continues to rise. This is a film that I have not seen. I've never seen Lilo and Stitch. And so many of our guests wow. are like, I love Lilo and Stitch. And I'm not allowed mm. to watch it until we get there in the order of this show. So I can't wait to get to it. But just before we crack on then, when I asked if you'd want to join us on Disneyversity, instantly you were like, Rescuers Down Under. There was a chance you might have joined us for the original Rescuers, but you were always plumping for Down Under and it worked out for this film. So why does this one mean a lot to you? Why is this the one that you gravitated towards? Oh man, it was one of those films, you know, when you're younger, I still do this occasionally, but less so now, like when you were younger and you watched a film so much, you not only knew every word, you knew almost like the inflictions on words and the delivery of words. I watched this film so much as a kid that I knew the inflictions. It's been so interesting to come back today and remember the rhythms of the characters speaking and the music and it's still being so precise. Like, 
I could not tell you what I had for breakfast yesterday morning. Like I couldn't <laughs> tell you, but I could tell you almost the entire choreography of that opening sequence, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into shortly. But I've just always loved it. I first discovered it through a show called Disney Time. I don't know if you, either of you watched it and it was hosted by... When I was watching it, it was hosted by Philip Schofield. And it was nice. this real project at the time. And it was a, like a half hour show or so where he presented to camera. It would be like thematically tied together, little clips of Disney films. And sometimes they'd, they'd chuck in a preview for something. And it was Disney films to do with a kind of flight and flight sequences and things for this episode. And it had like Philip Schofield like walking around an air hangar, I think it was, and talking to camera <laughs> about Disney and queuing up these clips. And they showed as part of this one episode, which my dad recorded for me on, because we didn't have loads of money growing up, so he'd just record stuff off the telly. And this was something that he recorded for me that I think we still have at home. And I remember watching that opening sequence for Rescuers Down Under as part of this kind of flight episode and just being so completely stunned by what I was seeing. And the first time that I really processed that animation didn't just have to be about animals that talked. There was skill there and there was motion and, and it could do extraordinary things with the medium. None of these words would have actually come to me, but like, you know, that really sensory moment of just awe and that just really stuck with me. I watched it to death. My parents got it for me from like an Asda's when we did the big shop on the weekend. I think, it, you know, <laughs> when you used to get your videos Yeah. and they bought it for me as a treat. So I got the VHS and I just, oh, I watched it to death. If a VHS could die, I'm pretty sure I killed my VHS at Rescue's Down Under. <laughs> So that is a very long answer to say why this always had to be the one that I came on and spoke about. Incredible. Well, you are the expert on this as well as Sam then. I have come to this for the very first time, so I'm excited for us to get into it. That is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time we're heading over to the other side of the globe for the very first canonical sequel in the Walt Disney Animation Studios canon, 1990s. The Rescuers Down Under. Let's bloody go! Right then, Sam, this is often the point where I go, well, everybody knows the plot of this movie anyway, but just give us a summary. This is one that people might not know the plot of The Rescuers Down Under. I didn't know it until today. So what can you tell us about the plot of this movie? What's the story this time around? The Rescueed Society are called to the aid of an allegedly Australian child named Cordy, who's been kidnapped by an evil poacher to help him find a rare golden eagle and its eggs. Bernard and Bianca, our heroes from the first movie, travel to the outback for a series of Aussie adventures, all while Bernard is struggling to find time to propose to Bianca. <laughs> Not to the eagle or anything else, to Bianca. <laughs> well, we've got a bit of everything there. We've got adventure we've got romance we've got a big old bird tons of stuff going on but the most important thing about this right is that as i mentioned before this is the very first walt disney animation studios sequel we often talk in lasting legacy about straight to dvd sequels which are connected but they're not official often they came from a slightly different arm of the studio this is the first in canon. What, like 29 films in are we now, Sam? Is something like that. So why did it take this long? And why with the rescuers were they suddenly like, okay, it's sequel time? Yeah, it's the first sequel. It's also the first squeakquel, <laughs> which is important to Long note. before Alvin and the Chipmunks did it. 
there's a whole lineage of squeakles. It's not the Disney Studios' first sequel ever, though. That would be Son of Flubber from 1963, the live-action movie. The Son of Flubber in that is a gas called Flubber Gas that can change the weather. Fact fans. Sure, makes sense. But yeah, why the sequel to The Rescuers? What's that about? Why not any other film? I think there's something about The Rescuers. I mean, we said last time the way that that ends feels like it sets up a sequel. It ends with Bernard and Bianca and Orville and Evan Rude, who, well, we'll get to that, flying off into the distance off to rescue another kid. And it's like, okay, you can make a bunch of these. It's like James Bond. You can just take these characters and put them in a different scenario every time. So it does lend itself well as opposed to these kind of closed book fairy tale movies like Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid that only a maniac would try and make a sequel to Cough Cough. But <laughs> what it all came down to really, well, I've got a quote from the director, one of the directors, Mike Gabriel. This is from an excellent article on Collider by Drew Taylor, which does a really deep dive and is basically the only article that's ever been written on the making of this movie so i got a lot of info from that so mike gabriel says i said to peter schneider that was the oh, i've got to set peter schneider up now <laughs> so <laughs> okay peter schneider is like jeffrey katzenberg's second in command it's his specific job to run the animation studio katzenberg is in charge of production schneider is his like eyes and ears and animation so mike gabriel said to peter schneider why would you do a sequel to that and schneider said because it was the highest grossing film of the past 10 years that's why that's what we're going to make whether you want to do it or not so schneider and by extension katzenberg were just determined to do a sequel to this movie because it was their biggest hit so why would this also not be a massive hit? And yeah, The Rescuers was like probably the most successful film of the Dark Age on release. And I think there was a reluctance to tamper with the films of the Walt era. They're still kind of seen as sacrosanct. So it makes sense from multiple perspectives to do this. Maybe it makes less sense to do it in Australia until you remember that Crocodile Dundee came out a few years ago and was a massive hit. And that's just such a Katzenberg move to me. I don't know necessarily for a fact that it was his decision, but you can just picture him being like, Australia, we're going to Australia. The kids love Australia. Crocodile Dundee, Australia. Takes a big sip of Diet Coke. Call that a sequel? This is a sequel, mate. <laughs> oh, yes, very good. <laughs> and, you know, lots of environments and animals that Disney haven't necessarily worked with before. The animators got to take a trip to Australia, which was their first big research trip abroad since Saludos Amigos. Oh, wow. And that would become common. Good for them, Sam. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, a lot of Disney and Pixar movies in the future, whenever they're set in a different country, a different kind of environment, they would go on these sorts of research trips. So it's interesting that this was the first of those. So even though, as you say, the first film kind of left on this open-ended note, but it wasn't really until this Katzenberg era that there's actual talk of doing a sequel. So where did the plot and the idea specifically for Down Under come from? Remind me, were there books for these? Was that a thing? There were Rescuers books. There were a lot of Rescuers books. There was, I think, about 9, 10, something like that in the original book series, but not even the first Rescuers was based directly 
on one of those books. It was suggested by the series that said in the opening title. That was it. It was such a weird, specific wording of that. So yeah, this is just a pure original Disney story starring these characters. And like I say, there's not been a great deal written about this movie or documented about its making. All I've got is Crocodile Dundee, Australia, rescuers made a lot of money, let's do the rescuers. <laughs> It's funny as well because in Disney terms, it feels quite soon after the Dark Age, but it really struck me. The first film was 1977, same year as Star Wars, and this is 1990. This is the year of Home Alone, and in Hollywood terms, that's a big gap. Yeah, you'd almost start to get concerned that people might have forgotten about the rescuers, (laughs) that the children of the 1990s might not know or care who the rescuers are. So what would you do in that situation? So you're Walt Disney, you're you're Jeffrey Katzenberg. Okay, I've got my Diet Coke. (laughs) I'm making crazy decisions. Yeah. You're thinking, let's test the waters on these rescuers, guys. This movie's halfway through production. Maybe you're starting to get cold feet. Okay, let's actually do what Disney are doing right now with Avatar and put the rescuers back in theatres so and disney did this a lot they're always re-releasing their movies in this era they bring the rescuers out in 1989 and it absolutely bombs (laughs) at the box office so it only made 21 million it was one of their lowest grossing re-releases and so for example on either side you had bambi which made 39 million and peter pan which made 29 million rescuers on 21 katzenberg completely lost confidence in this as a premise and pulled a lot of resources from the movie wow. halfway through. Okay. So this one, it's happening because it's going to make all the money and then it's kind of not happening as much because they don't think it's going to make as much money. And there's all these books to choose from, but they've just plucked Australia out of the air. It's not based on any of the books. This is just a weird anomaly. We're not going to get another canonical Walt Disney Animation Studios sequel until Ralph breaks the internet. That's the next one from here, right? Because that's before Frozen 2. There are very few sequels that count in this list. Yeah, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Oh, Winnie the Pooh is sort of a sequel. I mean, Winnie the Pooh doesn't really have a, a plot, so to speak. But the 2011 Winnie the Pooh movie, I guess, is is sort of a sequel. And you know, there'd been lots of theatrical Pooh movies, for example. Ben's smiling at the word Pooh again. It's just a funny phrase, theatrical Pooh movies. <laughs> I can't help that being funny. There's been like Jungle Book 2, Return to Neverland, made it to... Sorry, that's two different movies. Not Jungle Book 2, Colon, Return to Neverland. Those two separate movies went to theatres. But yeah, this was... There wasn't another sequel made by Walt Disney Animation Studios for a long time after this. And maybe we'll figure out why down the road. But before we get stuck into the main discussion... Let's get into Caps a little bit more. We spoke about this a bit in the Little Mermaid episode. We've had a few films in a row now where we've started to see elements of 3D animation coming through, but that makes a major appearance in The Rescuers Down Under. So in in basic terms, Sam, let's get into a little bit more detail. Remind us again, what is Caps? How does it work? And how did it revolutionize animation at the studio? Okay, so CAPS is the computer animation production system. It was developed by Walt Disney Animation Studios in collaboration with a few different partners in kind of the software industry, which at that point in time included Pixar. So this is the first real collaboration between those two studios. And it's a suite of programs. It's not one thing. It's a bunch of different programs that do slightly different things, but they all contribute to the digital production 
of animation basically taking over well a large part of what it is is taking over jobs that were originally done physically like multiplane photography and coloring so what was originally done by an ink and paint team is now done in a computer so this is the first Disney movie to be completely coloured in a computer. You would draw the cells, then instead of photocopying them, as they had done since Dalmatians, they would scan them and colour them digitally. So it's still hand-drawn animation, but it's being coloured on a computer, it's being composited on a computer to create this multiplane next-level effect. And it also means that for the first time, you can composite fully digital 3D images with the 2D images so we've seen you say we've seen computer graphics in the past what we've seen is in for example great mouse detective with the clock tower or oliver and company with a lot of the vehicles we've seen images that were created on a computer and then printed onto animation cells and colored by hand what we are getting in rescuers down under most obviously, I think in the case of the New York skyline or the Sydney Opera House is a very obvious example, or the Globe when they're doing the whole Indiana Jones like lines on a map sequence early on, we are getting images that have been completely created within a computer. We're seeing like unfiltered digital imagery in a Disney animated movie for the first time because now is the first time they've really been able to combine it with the 2D hand-drawn stuff. I mean, that's such a huge leap. And it makes me think of something I just watched recently on Disney Plus is the Light and Magic documentary series all about ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, which was the effects company that came up out of the original Star Wars movie and again, sort of revolutionized all of Hollywood. But that leans into the origins of Pixar and just general computer visual effects also leads into changes in animation as well it's fascinating to see how this stuff comes about yeah one of the first uses of computer graphics in the live action movie was star trek wrath of khan they created a computer simulation of basically i think it's like an exploding planet or a terraformed planet for the use on a computer screen in the movie and i always find that interesting like early computer graphics is the same in tron was portraying computer graphics in the movies. You're not looking at a planet, you're looking at a computer simulation of a planet. That's what it's supposed to be. But that's very similar to the shot of the globe in this movie, in the map sequence early on. So you're bringing out some of those same tricks, but now instead of just playing them on screen in a live-action movie, you can combine them with these 2D characters and, and other effects in a really visually sumptuous way. It's the first fully digital feature ever produced. Everything that you see on screen was made that way in a computer. You've watched all of these movies in order. Could you see the difference? In points, yes, and we'll come to this, but there were points also where it did feel like quite a throwbacky movie in a lot of ways. I think there were points that it did feel a bit more computerized. You could feel that influence, but... In other ways, it felt like classic Disney, which I imagine is what they were hoping for. That on the one hand, it's sort of drawing attention to itself, and on the other hand, is just, here's how we're going to make these movies, but they're still, to an extent, going to feel like they always have. So, as we go into this, Sam, the stuff we need to be looking out for in this movie and the ones going forward is that mixing of kind of 3D elements, but within 2D worlds and this next level detail of the multiplane shots zooming through environments and that kind of thing. That is where we're looking for our caps, right? Right, exactly. It makes it... The camera is an interesting point, and we'll see that a lot in 
Rescuers Down Under, we'll talk about that more when we get in the film, but these movies can now mimic live-action camera movements a lot easier. And if you're trying to make, let's say, a kind of Steven Spielberg-style action movie, but with mice, having a camera that can mimic a Steven Spielberg-style camera movement is very useful. It just really adds so much depth and speed and fluidity to what we're seeing on screen. And the point that you make is also valid that this is something we're going to see reoccur in a lot of the movies we're about to look at, and it'll usually be quite obvious where we see something in Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin that could not have been done before The Rescue was Down Under. And I think that's important to note because this movie often gets left out of discussions of the Disney Renaissance completely, or maybe just included on a list because it happened to fall in between The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And that's because it's not a classic story. It's not a musical. You know, it doesn't fit into a lot of what we think of the Renaissance formula to be. But like we talked about last time, how Little Mermaid set in motion a lot of those formulas that have become characteristic of this whole era. But as said before, visually, it's not quite a piece with movies like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and the Lion King. It feels a bit with all due respect to the amazing animation work being done in Little Mermaid, it feels a bit flatter. The colours don't feel as, as vivid. But that distinct visual style that those later movies have, where you integrate 2D characters with CG settings and effects, really begins in Rescuers Down Under. So what we think of as the classic Disney Renaissance formula is actually a combination of Mermaid and Rescuers Down Under. And that's why it's an important movie. That's why it's worth spending hours talking about it, as we're about to... <laughs> Right then, guys, hold on to your bloody dingoes and let's go down under. Right, well, I'm going to make a big claim here and say this might be the most exciting opening sequence to any Disney movie we've had so far. And I say that for a specific reason, because the sense of energy and propulsion in this 3D caps-assisted whoosh over the outback, through fields and towards canyons. It was absolutely exhilarating. Beth, I can totally imagine why this captured your imagination as a child. Absolutely. It's playful and the score is beautiful and it's that real childhood fantasy of what if an animal that you don't get to encounter in, in real life. What, what if a beautiful beast of an animal was your best friend and you had this like complete unity with an animal and you could fly with a bird, you know, and fly with a bird over water. And it was just so sumptuous and grand. And like you say, just really propulsive and exciting and just hit the ground running in such a wonderful way. And the way that the eagle is designed as well, like it felt so realistic considering it was animated. I, I, again, it's one of those things where I watched it and realised the potential of animation that you felt you could reach out and touch this animal. It wasn't cute. You know, it, it wasn't like the other Australian animals in the film. It was like majestic, and beautiful. And yeah, oh, I just loved it. And Sam, before we even get to the flight stuff, like the very opening shot of this movie, something you teed up in the Little Mermaid episode that the cap system ties into is the ability to do these really complicated tracking shots. And we begin with like a bug on a leaf and then we move through the leaf and then there's another bug on another leaf. But we have <laughs> this like ongoing tracking shot before we even get 
to the whooshing. What what is going on here? Yeah, it's very reminiscent of when we were talking about the multiplane camera, what literally was years ago. Um, we were talking about how they really showed that off in like the introductory sequences of the movies like Pinocchio or Bambi, these very complex multi-layered shots. And one of the things that Caps allows them to do is take that to the nth degree because they're not limited by the size of their camera. They can have as many layers of animation on top of each other as you want. So you can start off with one bug and then a slightly bigger bug behind that and then a slightly bigger bug behind that. And then it suddenly whooshes through this huge open plane with hundreds of thousands of layers of little flowers and stuff towards these big kind of square mountains i guess they are i'm not sure do those things have a name did any of us do geography at gcse or a level can anybody help on this not quite a rock not quite a mountain something in between kind of like if every rock was airs rock just to be extremely stereotypically australian about this that is that is kind of how i saw it i think the sequence itself feels really exciting but also having watched these films sequentially Seeing us at this point where, as you say, we're whooshing through like hundreds and hundreds of layers, that feels exciting as well to me as as somebody on this journey of going through these movies. That feels like we're literally being like whooshed into the future of animation before our very eyes. It visibly takes it to another level. You know, we had the multiplane camera back in Pinocchio. We had the moment where Basil first turns around and looks at all of the cogs and the clock and the great mouse detective. And then this is that next level of technological evolution. And it really wants you to feel that as a viewer. But then this is just the appetizer for that scene when Cordy flies with Maruhute which is the real grand opening sequence that shows you exactly what this tech can do and what it can make you feel. And that's obviously something that you really tapped into as a child. Yeah, and it is the eagle is a different kind of character to the ones we're used to, a different kind of animated character. I think that's really astute what you said, Beth, about the way that it looks, also the fact that it doesn't speak. This isn't a cartoon character, and there's a reason why it doesn't speak, and that's because to do so would be to rob it of this majesty. It wouldn't inspire awe in the same way if it was like one of the other generally stupider animals that Cody can just talk to and interact with, like a mate. This is something different. I absolutely loved Marahute. I have realized fairly recently in life, I love mythical birds. Yeah. I think it's something, this combination of like a 90s childhood where every Pokemon game ended with like, catch all the mythical birds, catch Zapdos and Moltres and Arcticuno, that's the other one. In Harry Potter, I always loved the stuff with Buckbeak, Buckbeak is my guy, Forks, Phoenix stuff. There's just something about mythical birds. I think because birds kind of feel mythical anyway. And so as soon as we had... (laughs) They can fly, Sam. They're small and they've got hollow bones and they used to be dinosaurs and now they just fly around, but also eat from bins. (laughs) Like, what is that? So starting this film with this grand, exciting sequence that also had this, like, big, majestic creature who is separated from all the other animals here, it just really got me. What is the standout bit of that flight sequence for you guys? Because for me, there's a very obvious moment of, like, wow, I want to see if we've got the same one. Well, for me, going back to this fantasy of having a friendship with a massive animal it's the tickling that gets me I know that it's obviously like the visual mastery and I I feel like I can guess at yours is but for me it's that small 
bit of comic relief that isn't naff or cheesy. It's just a very sweet moment between them that kind of breaks up the majesty in a way. And I, oh, I love it. I really love it. See, the bit for me, which I think is probably more likely to be the one that Sam is thinking of, is when Cody is kind of being flown over the water and he gets to, like, walk on water, basically. He gets to be tiny boy Jesus with a mythical bird walking on water, running around. (laughs) Was that the bit for you, Sam? Yeah, well, that was was the bit for me. (laughs) And then when they go over the waterfall and you see the depth that they've achieved there again with Caps, they've created this incredible sense of depth when you see the whole outback stretch out below him. But the, the tickling was a better answer. That's uh, <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah, it's the intimacy. A little like an ASMR, hands running through eagle feathers. I don't know if that's what it would sound like. <laughs> <laughs> but something I do think is interesting with this whole intro is that this flight sequence with Marahute, that is the first 10 minutes of the movie. This is not a long movie But it is 10 minutes before we even see a single mouse. That felt like a surprising decision to me. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, this film isn't necessarily that interested in Bernard and Bianca. This is a movie about Cordy and his eagle and the poacher. And to an extent, an albatross. It's not so much about mice. Yeah, let's get into that. Because I fell in love with Bianca and Bernard when we did The Rescuers. And... I'd never seen that film before either, and they were just such charming characters, and the scenes they do have here are really touching, right? Their relationship, the real, the way they animate their intimacy together, and especially when we see them again in this film, that they've been together for a little while now, and Bernard is getting ready to propose, and that's super cute. But it did really strike me that they are in this film way less, considering it is The Rescuers Down Under, And it felt like a lot of that stuff around the wider mythology of the Rescue Aid Society was also really just the setup, whereas maybe the first Rescuers, we spent a bit more time in that whole kind of system. It's the, uh, this is the third Disney movie where the title characters don't have the most screen time. Of the ones we've watched so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the third one they've made where the title characters don't have more screen time. So obviously Cordy has more screen time than the rescuers. The others are Sleeping Beauty. Uh, I mean, she's asleep quite a bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, to be fair. And Peter Pan, Captain Hook has the most screen time in Peter Pan. Getting shaved or getting chased by a crocodile takes up most of that. I like those guys and I like the scenes with them in this movie, but it feels like it's lost interest in them as characters maybe during the storyboarding process for this they just ran out of steam with those guys and were like let's let's shift more towards the the action adventure stuff with the kid and the eagle because that is more exciting that is what people remember about this movie i mean beth do you have a lot of affection for bernard and bianca how do you feel about their place in this film oh i do have a lot of affection for them and i have a lot of affection for the world that they get to live in that they've created a kind of separate world for the rescuers where they go for dinner in chandeliers and eat pea soup made from a pea and (laughs) a little restaurant where all the cockroaches from the human restaurant steal the spare food and cook that up for the mice i want a whole film about that exactly and I, i do love their commitment to that and that they've got all these, you know, international chapters and what those characters look like as well. And so I really do adore that, but I am 
glad that they they still get their arc and Bernardo still has his own kind of mission within a mission which is quite wonderful but I like that we got just a little glimpse back into their world but it feeds nicely into a broader film with much bigger themes and, and much bigger messages about things like environmentalism about preserving the planet about preserving you know natures and, and animal welfare you know and I'm, I'm all for kind of baking those big themes into a film that also has mice eating pea soup so because I think that aspect of the film feels quite modern feels like it's from kind of the 1990s whereas Bernard and Bianca feel a bit old-fashioned I think especially coming after like the Little Mermaid where Ariel feels like a very modern character compared to the older Disney princesses and Oliver and Company where your biggest star is Billy Joel the coolest man on the planet it feels like (laughs) Bernard and Bianca are a little bit stuffy they feel like they're from the 1970s at the latest, you know, that they, they have a kind of old-fashioned relationship dynamic, and it's okay for characters to have that sometimes. But yeah, maybe that's part of the reason why the story about Cordy and the Poacher feels a lot more contemporary and fresh than their personalities. And I find that charming because I find the rescuers charming. But I also like old things. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm saying that as, as an adult. And I don't know, I think kids at the time, there might have been a sense that these two characters aren't necessarily child friendly that's the wrong word i mean it's the more mature part of the story isn't it as you say like the adventure stuff really is mostly with with cody and the poacher and and marahute and all of that stuff whereas bianca and bernardo it's the heart it's pure heart and i think because we have those established connections with those characters and seeing them continuing their relationship like there's just little moments where when they're flying over to Australia and we see those two like snuggled up together and snoozing on the plane and they're absolute couple goals. I love them so much. It made me so (laughs) cross when they get to Australia and this guy, Jake comes in this Australian (laughs) mouse with his little Aussie hat and starts kind of flirting with Bianca. I felt enraged on Bernard's behalf there. He, I just, I needed him out of the picture ASAP. I could have done without Jake, you know? <laughs> Bianca is unshaken though, you know, even in spite of that, she is unshaken in in the the face of temptation, in the face of mouse crocodile dundee, you know, she she still only has eyes for her dumpy, lovely, clumsy mouse boy. <laughs> I mean the clumsiness, there's a lot of fun with him trying to propose various times through the film and it keeps getting interrupted. The first time he tries when they're in the restaurant and the ring is skidding across the floor it reminded me of the start of the temple of doom where uh, <laughs> indiana jones where there's the antidote to the poison and the diamond that are being kicked around the floor of the restaurant and they're all scrabbling around on the floor trying to get it which for me as well just ties it into this lineage of adventure movies of this being like a disney adventure i just want the best things for both of them and it really warmed my heart when he finally got his moment at the end to get that proposal in yeah i had a similar experience recently of um struggling to find the right opportunity to propose to somebody so i related to that quite hard it was uh... (laughs) we have not mentioned this on the podcast yet but as well as sam moving to london sam just got engaged congratulations sam and lydia congratulations sam and lydia yeah brilliant yeah so but it was it was somewhat bernard-esque you took it to a restaurant you dropped the ring it got kicked around the floor there were cockroaches everywhere that's how it went down right yep culminated in a, in a crocodile fight 
Uh, there in the end impressive in newcastle to be fair <laughs> I think this is a storyline that's relatable to adults and not necessarily to children bernard and bianca are very adult characters voiced by quite old people by this point in their careers i enjoyed it but eventually we're going to get to this film's box office and i think that might reflect the fact that uh, kids weren't necessarily as in love with this as maybe Beth was. But what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think part of the reason that then it focuses on Cody is that you have this kid character who kids coming to see the film are gonna relate to and imagine themselves in this adventure. And maybe as a kid, that is great. But watching this as an adult. I could have done without Cody. This reminded me a lot of the first Rescuers movie in that the stuff with the mice is fun and adventure and kind of sweet and romantic. Then you have this kid at the heart of the movie who is just not great and he felt like in the lineage to me... I can feel Beth judging me right now, coming for her precious <laughs> Rescuers down under. But he feels in this lineage, Cody does, of... Just slightly drippy Disney kids who, you know, could do with a little extra something about them. He's better than Penny, or whatever she was called. He's better than Jenny from Oliver and Company. He's slightly less saccharine. He's better than Arthur from The Sword and the Stone, I would say. (laughs) These are all very low bars. (laughs) He's slightly less saccharine in the performance than those guys. And he's got something about them, Ben. He can fly on an eagle. He's an action kid. He runs through the outback, saving animals and stuff. I think this is... He's not great, but I think he's better than you're making him out to be. He's not Australian. No, which <laughs> is get that out of the way. strange. You couldn't find an Australian child? Yeah, this was, I mean, I was doing some light reading on this today in preparation for this. And I think I saw that someone was really petitioning to have an Aboriginal boy as the lead in this film. But it was decided by the powers that be that it would be a blonde Disney boy, essentially. I mean, yeah, I just don't, I didn't have much of an opinion on him, but Ben's got me thinking now because <laughs> I guess he is, to put it mildly, like the weakest link in the film, I guess. He has to be there to kind of move the parts around. But yeah, he could have had more gumption. I would have definitely preferred it if it was an Aboriginal kid. That would have made a lot more sense. It'd probably been pretty darn cool to have that in a Disney film in the year that it came out. But drippy, I guess, is the word. Yeah, I think it was the story people, uh, Joe Ranft and Brenda Chapman, who were pushing for him to be Aboriginal, and Katzenberg said, quote, nobody wants to see that. Ugh. and said it would hurt the box office worldwide. So this kid needed to be white, blonde, and apparently just straight-up American. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's crazy. And it, he, I mean, first up, Boo Katzenberg gets stuffed. But also, again, is in this lineage of weird accent stuff in Disney movies where you have films set in very specific places and then your central character has a little American accent because these are American films trying to appeal primarily to American kids. But it's the rescuers down under. It's all about going to Australia. And for this kid to have an American accent was just so strange. It's like Peter Pan. That's a weird one, isn't it? Like all the other kids in the movie have, like the kids from London have English accents. Peter Pan has an American accent. And it's because he's meant to be the hero. He's meant to be endeared to American audiences in that way. But you don't even have that kind of dynamic. Like there's not really a reason in this for him to not have an Australian accent. The only Australian actor in this is the guy who plays Jake, uh, Tristan Rogers. Everyone else is either just straight up doing an American accent or is 
a English actor doing a bad Australian accent. And I'll be honest, the guy who voices Jake, even he didn't sound that Australian. They could have really dialed up that <laughs> accent. I thought there were points where I was like, is he doing an Aussie accent? This sounds like an American doing a slightly weak Australian accent, but he was actually Aussie. He was actually Aussie. I'm interested in Cordy, though, because it kind of follows up from a thread that I was talking about in our last episode, in our Little Mermaid episode, about these kind of wild children characters, these child characters in Disney movies who grow up in the natural world or at one with the natural world. And by the end, like Mowgli or Christopher Robin or Ariel always end up domesticated and brought into human society. And Cordy is kind of in a more liminal space than that. Like he exists in this oneness with nature. He has this affinity for animals in particular. He can talk to animals like Penny from The Rescuers can. But he lives in like a hut with his mother in the middle, literally in the middle of nowhere. That's what that opening sequence tells us. It's completely in the middle of nowhere in the outback. And we don't really see what happens to him afterwards. Like he lives at home, but he also inhabits this kind of outback space this natural space and then at the end he doesn't get dragged away from it and forced into a into a normal human suburban life like most of these other characters do and i think that kind of speaks to this theme of environmentalism that we've been talking about that runs through the movie where it is actually putting forward an argument for a genuine coexistence between human and animal like it doesn't have to be one or the other you don't have to make a choice you can be someone like cordy who is human and lives with humans but still has this deep spiritual connection with the animals and i think you feel that in that finale as well because he is going so far out of his way to free marahute he is a brave kid Mm. we'll come back to the finale uh, a little bit later in our discussion but so much of the cody stuff is then tied up in and contrasted with plot with the poacher is it mccreechy mccreech mcleech mcleech yeah oh dastardly he is again so much of this film actually reminds me of the first rescuers movie down to its flaws which is i didn't like the kid that much and the villain is like okay they're believably evil you hate mcleech because he's a poacher and he's a pretty outwardly kind of grumpy bad dude but we have just come off the back of the Little Mermaid, and we have just had Ursula, we've seen how good it gets, and McLeach, he's not up there for me. What did you guys make of him as a character? I mean, he just doesn't have that much to do. He doesn't have much, by the way, of a, of a motivation. He's certainly no Ursula. You know, he won't go down as one of the great grand villains of Disney. He's, he's pretty forgettable. He's cunning. I'll give him that. Like, he's very cunning when he tricks Cody and quite manipulative i guess but yeah i love a proper dastardly villain often with a camp streak running through them so yeah to come off the back of ursula is uh big shoes to fill anyway but yeah he doesn't even come close couldn't shine her shoes not that she has feet six skinny shoes (laughs) on the end of each tentacle yeah it's not camp is it and that's kind of what we're used to from a renaissance era disney movies in between ursula and jafar and you've got scar he's not camp at all but i think that does make him does that maybe not make him genuinely threatening? Because he's like a human character, he's, he exists. People like him exist out in the world. And I think that's what I found quite effective about Medusa in the first Rescuers movie as well, that they are just cruel to children in fairly yeah. realistic, believable ways. And that, I mean, maybe this guy takes it slightly overboard when he's trying to feed the crocodiles on the end of a crane. <laughs> I mean, that is truly 
quite despicable. But yeah, I think he's okay. It's a committed performance from George C. Scott in this. Yeah, I guess as well, this is a different kind of villain in the, again, to, to go back to the, the broader themes about environmentalism and poaching and things, he is not perhaps supposed to have the same motivations, the same personal motivations as someone like Ursula. He's supposed to be representative of an entire industry of wrongins. You know, he's he's almost he's almost faceless in a way. Maybe that is part of the reason why he is kind of forgettable is because he could be indicative of any kind of threat on, on wildlife. And maybe that's that's what they've done. And maybe they're trying to deter from him being any fun or because it's a, a really serious message that they're kind of honing in on here. You would like to think other than it just being dull, uninspired <laughs> writing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in Disney, that obviously goes back all the way to Bambi, this faceless hunter character who, who you literally mm. never see. And McLeach is given a face, but I think he is, yeah, he's a little bit of... He's kind of an archetype. He stands in for a group, for an industry, for an actual real world practice that Cordy stands in opposition against. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that is a theme that as I was watching this film today, it didn't immediately leap out, but I think you're really right. I was struck, Beth, by you saying how much the environmental side of the story was something you have long connected to. And I think you're very right in saying that the stuff with McLeach, we see he is capturing animals and they have that whole conversation where they're like, you're going to be a bag, you're going to be a belt. And it's played on the one hand as part of a fun sequence, but the stakes there are very real. And the stuff that he's doing in terms of he's capturing animals and he's going to kill them and he wants this golden eagle, this like mythical creature because he just wants it and he wants its babies and all of that is it is getting at something real and then you have this as much as he's not my favorite thing cody as a hero kid character who like sam said is actively fighting against that is doing his Mm. bit to push back against that system maybe makes me think there's a little bit more to this film than i first had realized it's quite sobering when you think that all of the fun side characters in this movie the kind of characters that we connect with Ben, the, the kind of characters who in The Little Mermaid you would find in Sebastian's Hot Crustacean Band. In this movie, you're all locked in cages. We get yeah. like two scenes with these this like great, cute, wacky gang of Australian critters and they're all locked in cages and we never see what happens to them. Presumably, Cordy lets them out, but they are just trapped in this dark, dingy room the whole time. Okay, we've talked a lot of the serious stuff. We've talked the mice. We've talked the human characters. Now we need to talk about something that has been bothering me all day, all afternoon, and I think it's going to bother me for a while, right? Because we came out of The Rescuers, and the character I fail head over heels for, who just worked his way into my heart, was Orville the Albatross. Just a true legend, an absolute icon. He was so much fun in that first film. And like I said last week, oh, I'm so excited for more rescuers and we get Bianca and Bernard and we're going to get more Orville. And you tipped me off that there might not be as much Orville as I was hoping for in this movie. What I then heartbreakingly had to discover on my own is that there's no Orville in this movie. There's a whole bit where we're like, we're going to Orville's hut. Let's go and see where Orville is. And I was like, here we go. I was sat in the Empire office on my lunch break, to be fair, it was lunch. But I was watching this movie in the office and I was like, oh my God, we're getting back to Orville. Beth probably saw across the desk my face just absolutely fall as soon as I found out that 
There is no Orville in this movie. I was upset. I immediately texted you, Sam. You must have known for a while that this was coming. Yep. So we don't get Orville. We get his brother, Wilbur. Quick quiz, Orville and Wilbur named after... The Wright Brothers. Boom. Excellent. Points for Beth. Who? The Wright Brothers. <laughs> the Wright Brothers. What? The Wright Brothers. The first airplane. They built the first plane. I, I'm not I'm not a plane nerd. I'm not a flight nerd. How do you guys both know this? <laughs> I didn't expect you to know the first names necessarily, but it's the Wright brothers. You know you can picture the Wright brothers playing. It's like a cardboard thing. It's like a big dumb you can picture the Wright brothers playing. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> it's sort of a big box, like it's got a top bit and a it bottom. It looks like bit Orville a... if Orville was a plane. And that's <laughs> it, it's okay, right. Orville and Wilbur. Wilbur is his brother. The flight company or whatever it is is under new management. We see a sign on the door. It's Wilbur. And he's a little bit different to Orville. And I guess my question was, what will Ben think? Will Ben think that these characters are equally lovable? Or will he have problems with Wilbur? (laughs) Look, it took me a while to get over the disappointments. I, I can't even read out my notes from that moment because they're quite sweary. I was quite upset that Orville was not in this movie. And I was like, who is this Wilbur guy? Why suddenly Wilbur? Sam, I'm going to ask you that properly in a second. Why Wilbur? But it took me a couple of minutes once I got over the shock. He is pretty decent. He's no Orville. I'm going to say that right now. He's not up there with Orville. But he is pretty good. He has a little bit more maybe Phil Harris kind of swagger to him. He's got a little bit more of that cockiness. I like that he's a sort of fun-loving party guy who drinks cocktails. I really liked his warm-up routine, uh, doing his kind of stretches and his exercises when he's getting ready to fly. He's slightly more kind of bro-y. He's got a bit of sound just to get into something we talk about again, a surprising amount. He's got a little bit more bonehead energy. He's like (laughs) Orville but a bit more boneheaded. Okay, yeah. I mean Beth, first of all, what do you think of Wilbur? I think Wilbur's great. I think he's (laughs) such good fun and I love John Candy as Wilbur as well. John Candy is just such a force so to have him kind of along as part of this adventure is just super sweet great hawaiian shirts just like crooked funny and oh i just had had the best time and i can't remember that much about the rescuers so i'm just not as heartbreaking as ben i'm very much here for wilbur and specifically john candy as wilbur do you know i didn't clock while i was watching it that it was john candy yes I saw this after the rescuers as well when i was a kid i'm not gonna say wilbur's better but i think um I'm de- no, I just saw Ben's oh, face. I'm definitely oh, not Bill. saying that oh, Will was better. Oh, I think that the equally, I think that equally is good. But um, mm. yeah, I didn't have the disappointment. There's some great Wilbur lines in this. Whenever he takes off, he shouts, "Tie your kangaroos down, sports fans!" Or um, <laughs> throw another shrimp on the Barbie girls, and then jumps out of a plane accompanied by like surf guitar. Like it's really, really funny. We also get a big cowabunga at one point which i mean i was down for that this is extremely 1990 i think it's funny i like wilbur he's a bit more rock and roll so the reason why it's wilbur and not orville is sadly because orville's voice actor jim jordan passed away in between movies oh okay and i think it actually shows a lot of respect that they didn't recast Orville, because they really, really could have. <laughs> they, they could have just got another guy to, to be. Or you know, it's animation; it happens all the time. 
yeah, I think it, it shows a lot of respect that they didn't. And I appreciate Wilbur. He gets a lot more to do as well. He's got like an actual role in the plot. As I said that, I realise that's not really true, but he has side adventures that parallel yeah. the plot. He looks after the eggs. He gets tortured by nurses at right. one point. Oh my God, the little nurse mice are too much. They're too much. I can't, I can't cope. Why is there a subplot in this movie that is Wilbur being, like, tortured by a medical mouse and his nun sidekicks? Like, what was the decision? What was the story decision where they were like, let's have some kind of medical horror sequence with Wilbur absolutely <laughs> terrified for his life when a chainsaw comes out? Like, what was going yeah, on? It's like two protracted sequences and all I can think is they really didn't want to work with Bernard and Bianca on this. Like, anything that we can do to avoid having to animate and write stories for those characters. But <laughs> that is, like, the modern-day version of antics, right? That's the modern-day version of um, the dwarfs washing the faces in Snow White or something. We'll just have a little bit of a side adventure that adds nothing with these comedy characters. But in this, it's Wilbur getting a syringe up the backside and what have you, <laughs> screaming for his life. He doesn't just get a syringe in the bum. It gets, like, shot out of a gun into his bum. It's so extreme. But you touch on something really interesting there, which is... For me, in a lot of ways, this film, coming as the second movie in the Disney Renaissance, feels super throwbacky. The 3D stuff and the technological side of things feels like a leap forward, but the storytelling and the rhythms of it, and as you say, the reliance on his five minutes of japes feels pretty old school Disney. It feels more a piece maybe with the original Rescuers in the Dark Age and some of the stuff that came before that too. Yeah, I mean, if the arc of the Disney Renaissance is Disney getting back, at least initially, in touch with their past much more overtly in movies like Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid, then maybe this is a version of that. And, you know, it, it has similar themes to Bambi, for example. Yeah, so I think it does harken back to Disney past in various ways. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I did come round to Wilbur, the shock eventually wore off he has a lot to recommend on his own and maybe like beth if i'd have come to wilbur first if i was originally team wilbur who knows if i would have gravitated towards orville as much and sam you talking about the fact that they didn't want to recast him because the original guy passed away and let orville be orville this is all bringing me further towards team wilbur even though i'm always going to be an orville guy at heart but I wouldn't say Wilbur is necessarily Disney versus Legends status, but there are so, so many weird little guys in this movie. There are all kinds of Aussie creatures. I think the most Australian thing about this movie, because there's barely any accents in it, is just like an <laughs> abundance of, here's a kangaroo, here's a koala bear, here's a platypus, all of this stuff. There's bugs everywhere. And a character we need to talk about is Joanna, the kind of evil lizard. Because even though we should hate Joanna, I kind of love Joanna. I really was entertained every time Joanna was on the screen. There were moments where you felt genuinely sorry for Joanna, which I think was a testament to that whole character that you did kind of feel bad for her, that she was this kind of obedient pet and you know, awful, an awful creature generally through and through, but had this real, like, moment of redemption at the end. Yeah, Joanna is great. Joanna is probably my favourite character in this. <laughs> I like the fact that it's, it's a female lizard, because it didn't have to be, and 
it feels like in another Disney movie it would have been a bloke, but I don't know, there's something about she's a woman a woman. She's a lizard. She's a female lizard. <laughs> she's a woman, she's a lizard, she's a female lizard. Are we writing some kind of new song here? <laughs> <laughs> but she is like she's nasty. Like she's just a horrible, nasty little thing. She's like gross and base and cruel and snuffly and i don't know there's there's no attempt to like feminize this character there's no eyelashes on the lizard or anything right, right. there's no bow in the lizard's hair it's just a nasty little lizard that happens to be a woman <laughs> that's progressive in its own that was way poetry yeah that was absolute poetry sam i really enjoyed that that whole kind of character breakdown <laughs> she reminded me of like the midway point between gurgi from the Black Cauldron because she is also a bit of a like a, a creep. She's like a weird little character, but also a bit like Fidget in The Great Mouse Detective, mm-hmm. where she is this villainous character, but there's a real kind of pathos to Joanna, I think, as you say, Beth, because McLeach is so horrible to her, and you see her trying to do what he wants, but trying to do what she wants, and then maybe kind of towing the line towards some anti-heroism stuff. So I, I, I was kind of <laughs> with Joanna. I wanted good things for Joanna. I also wanted eggs for Joanna, just an abundance of eggs. Yeah. That whole, again, just a couple of minutes of japes of just joanna trying to eat some eggs and the way her kind of eyes pop up above the desk when she's like looking at the eggs and now she's over here and now she's over there just gobbling up these eggs one by one was just not something i expected from this movie but i was delighted that i got it really really funny yeah huge huge joanna fan she just wants to eat a big egg i mean it's (laughs) it's the most sympathetic villain motive we've seen in a disney movie the amount of connective tissue between her and like grogu i think is quite quite oh my god they just want to just want to chomp down on some eggs guys (laughs) this is making it even clearer why i was kind of team joanna in this movie because like my boy baby yoda just wants to eat an egg and we yeah. know she kind of shouldn't but we also we also want that for her we want those eggs really really good voice performance as well from frank welker doing lots of like little <laughs> lots of horrible little noises <laughs> yeah you're horribly good at that <laughs> frank welker is like the goat of animal noises he could probably do a goat he probably has done goats. He's like the guy that you always get. He's, I think he's got more film credits than anyone ever because they just always get him in animated movies to do animal noises. So he also does the noises of Marahuta in this. And uh, we've seen him before because he was get your hot dogs guy in Oliver and Company. So he can do he can do that as well. That's another animal it can do. New York hot dog vendor. Uh, <laughs> he's going to be in like probably almost every Renaissance movie and beyond. He's, he's all over the place. But really Sterling career best work as Joanna, I think. Do you know who would be a good modern day version of that would be Bill Hader? Because, you know, he did, like, voice consultancy on BB-8. Oh, yeah. And does all these, like, amazing, is capable of making all these really weird, odd noises. I think he'd be a really good, if they do, and I really hope they leave this one well alone, but if they did do a live-action Rescuers Anna Decker, like, Bill Hader would be a fantastic Joanna. <laughs> and especially if someone like Alan Tudyk is just suddenly unavailable, because Alan Tudyk at the moment is the guy where they're like, we need someone to make weird noises or, like, squawk for a bit. <laughs> That is who they currently get. He does the chicken in Moana, right? He does the chicken in Moana. He does that tropical bird, whatever it is, in Encanto. (laughs) Like, his name, you just never know who he's going to be. You just know he's going to be in these movies somewhere. But Sam, as I alluded to before, there are tons of odd little chaps 
in this movie, everywhere, all over the place. <laughs> Do you have any candidates to be a Disneyversity legend from this movie? It's kind of hard to choose, right? Well, I mean, I think there's the koala. We're talking about the guys who were locked up in yeah. McLeach's dungeon. There's the koala, there's Red the kangaroo, there's Frank the lizard, Frank I think, the is the, lizard. the standout, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm coming into this brand new, but could I please nominate Frank the Frill-Necked Lizard for <laughs> Disneyversity, please? He is just such a wimpy, simpering mess, and I relate to him on so many levels. <laughs> and it's so great when he's trying to jam his tail into the lock to escape, and then he just wilts because he can't stand the pressure. And I just think he's there's a little bit of Frank in all of this. Oh, you've really taught me around on Frank, because I was going <laughs> to say he's more of a, this is another category that we'll have on Disneyversity, Beth. He's more of a truly disgusting little freak. But oh, I mean, he can yeah. be both. And so is Joanna, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think Joanna and Frank, both truly disgusting little freaks, both probably <laughs> Disneyversity legends. And Frank looks like Bill the Lizard's cousin, possibly the first Disneyversity legend from Alice in Wonderland. He's the midpoint between Bill the Lizard and the Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park. And that has instantly <laughs> won him a place in my heart. He would be my pick for a Disneyversity legend from this movie. There is just something about that guy. He's so much fun to watch. It's, as Beth said, his kind of franticness, how just not together he is, how desperate he is, and the way he interacts in those sequences. I mean, I can imagine why they just cut to Frank Japes for a while, because <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that is a character where you just go, we we want to see more of him, we want to see more of this guy. He was maybe one of my very favourite things in this movie. Can we make this official? I think especially seeing as Beth is on the side of Frank, can he be officially inducted as a Disneyversity legend? Okay, do the, do the trumpet. <laughs> There we go. Frank is in the Disneyversity Legends canon, frills and all. What a guy. What a weird little guy. <laughs> right then, with a Disneyversity legend officially decided upon, let's get into the action finale of this film. We have a bunch of stuff going on. It is a hunt for the eggs. It is a hunt for the Golden Eagle. We have 3D tire treads on a tank, which very much bring to mind the clanking gears at the end of Basil the Great Mouse Detective. We have, on the other hand, a very typically Disney finale that ends on a rushing river and a big old waterfall, snapping crocodiles, all sorts of action-adventure tropes in play. What did you guys think of this finale? It is pretty fun as far as these things go again we're seeing the disney canon swerve more towards action we'll get a good few last little mcleach and joanna bits in there quite reminiscent of captain hook's fate in peter pan actually running away from crocodiles in a river while berating his sidekick at the same time and you do feel like joanna quite enjoys it after he's been chased away and then falls down a waterfall to his death. Another <laughs> Disney fallen death. There's a lot of... We're going to start to see even more Disney guys taking plummets. And just several deaths in one. Death by crocodile, death by water, death by falling off a massive cliff. This is another film, Sam, where we've just got a bunch of deaths in one. Somehow he dies from all of this stuff. <laughs> Apparently, when he was recording this, George C. Scott, who was seems to have been quite difficult in the making of this movie, demanded a bucket of water be brought to him so that he could dunk his head in it and act with his head in a bucket of water. And it's like, look, 
It's called acting. You can just pretend you're drowning. You don't have to. <laughs> Oh, Joanna! I can do it. Why can't he do it? Oh, goodness. Some people. Real job's worth that one, wasn't he? <laughs> well, talking of people who get very stuck into the films that they're making, there was an action beat here where McLeach, the poacher, has captured Marahute, the eagle, in a big old net and he's flying him away. Cody is hanging on, hanging from this like big bag that the eagle is now in and trying to cut the eagle free. Again, we talked about how he's a very active action hero, this kid. But the thing it reminded me of, him like clinging on, flying through the sky, it beat for beat matched the end of Mission Impossible Fallout, where Tom Cruise is hanging from that big bag (laughs) in the sky that's been flown around by a helicopter. I can imagine, look, if we do, as you said, get a live action remake of this, get Tom Cruise on the case. He'll do this stuff for real. I want to see that. <laughs> well, he's already done it. Macquarie's just ripped them off. Like, <laughs> the proof's in the pudding. I would love it Ridiculous. if they were looking at these old Disney movies for the examples of, like, what is Tom Cruise going to cling to next? What is Tom Cruise going to yeah. do for his next big stunt? I wonder if Disney will sue, given that Disney are in the market of suing, like, kindergartens in Florida. Are they going to come after <laughs> Chris Macquarie and Tom Cruise now for blatant copying the Mission Impossible Fallout? Well, that's all they're going to see now. Are you suggesting that would do, like, a kind of live action sequel of this where tom cruise is adult cordy because he is an all-american boy so it yeah. makes sense for him to be played by tom, tom did i say tom hanks before tom cruise i always get those two mixed up but that's <laughs> I mean, when i was a kid i thought tom hanks and tom cruise were like this effectively the same person effectively the same kind of actor and now it, it's clear that there couldn't be more different yeah i would love to see tom cruise just i don't know he's clung to so many things why not an albatross next? Tom Cruise riding an albatross through the sky or a massive golden eagle would be an incredible thing. I believe he can do it. He has that kind of power. I feel like eagle's the only thing left for him now, really. Like, we've ticked off most major aircrafts. We've ticked off all manner of, like, tanks, I'm pretty sure, skyscrapers. It's got to be eagle. That's the only fitting end to the Mission Impossible franchise. Are there eagles that big in real life? Absolutely. I mean, this is why Ben keeps saying mythical, <laughs> mythical, mythical, mythical. And I'm like, they're definitely out there. This is re- <laughs> Sam, this is a documentary, don't you know? This is a famous Disney documentary. <laughs> I mean, Tom Cruise is only a little fella as well, so he makes the eagle look bigger <laughs> by comparison. Yeah, proportions work out really well here. Well, guys, I think we need to get Christopher McQuarrie, Tom Cruise, Jeffrey Katzenberg, just Hollywood in general on the line. We've got something here. Let's head off and make that happen. That brings us to Discarded, where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make the film. Yes, The Rescuers is suggested by a series of books. This was not directly adapted from any of them. But Sam, often we get things that were mooted in production that came about while these films were coming together and got chopped along the way. So was there anything strange or unusual that was going to be in this film that changed during production? Yes, so I think it is worth pointing out one fairly major sequence that was cut at the storyboarding stage. We already talked about how Katzenberg decided that nobody wanted to see an Aboriginal Australian boy in the lead for this movie. And there were going to be other Aboriginal-inspired sequences in the film as well. There was going to be a dream sequence starring Bernard and Bianca, 
animated in an Aboriginal painting style, which would have been a really interesting departure for the animators to take. Yeah, I mean, it would have been in that vein of like great Disney fantasy sequences like Pink Elephants on Parade and Heffalumps and Woozles, but also shining a light on this underappreciated international art style, which, you know, would have been pretty cool. But Katzenberg also rejected that. Somewhat suspiciously, Prince of Egypt which was the first film that Katzenberg produced when he left and founded DreamWorks, has a very similar fantasy sequence in an ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic painting style. So he scrapped it here and then potentially nabbed the idea when he went to DreamWorks. What the hell? I mean, the silver lining is that that movie was directed by Brenda Chapman, who was also a story artist on this movie. So maybe it was her idea in the first place. But yeah, he was okay with it then. Why was he not okay with it in The Rescuers Down Under? That would have been so cool. And I love when Disney mm. leans on different animation styles in general, but especially when it does stuff that is kind of tipping its hat towards different cultures and not really appropriating it, but just putting it on a bigger stage. That would have been a really cool thing to see in this. I'm sad we didn't get that. Does that exist in any kind of like storyboard format? Do, have any remnants of that survived? I don't think so. I haven't seen it. I'll have another dig and see if I can bring anything up. It'll be on Twitter if I find it, but I've not (laughs) seen anything. But I also wanted to say one more thing, dig into one more uh, aspect of The Rescuers for Discarded. So because this is ended up being the last Rescuers movie, this kind of draws the line under Bernard and Bianca's story. It kind of gives them an ending, a fairly satisfying ending. I wanted to see how the book series ended. Okay. How did these books by Marjorie Sharp, which were quite different, but started off in a very similar place to the film series. How did they draw this saga to a close? Because there was a lot of them. And in order to do this, I had to go on my first Disneyversity research trip to the British Library. What? Because, yeah, I could not find even a, a vague synopsis of the final Rescuers book, Bernard into Battle, on the oh. internet. I had to go to the British Library. You know, I live in London now. I can do that. I got myself a membership. I ordered it online. You get them to bring it to the little office and you go and get it. And then you've got to sit in the library in silence and read your books surrounded by all of these tomes, all of these serious scholars. And here's me reading Bernard in the Battle. I had a great time. <laughs> I'm picturing you like Belle in the library. I know I'm skipping ahead a week. Next time is Beauty and the Beast. But I see you on a ladder shooting down the aisles of all these books in the British Library to find Bernard into battle. That sounds scary and dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So I read it cover to cover. I had a great time with it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's not very long. It's about 80 pages. Big text, children's book, some illustrations, some full page drawings. Some of which I'll put on Twitter because some of them are quite graphic. So this is quite a heady, dark, climactic ending to the rescuer's story. So it opens, it sets out its store right at the beginning. Its first line is, like Alexander the Great, Bernard found himself yearning for fresh worlds to conquer. Oh, wow. What? (laughs) Colonist Bernard. Oh, my God. I think she's speaking metaphorically, but it's uh, it's still a very high tone for this, right? My God, my childhood is just slipping through my fingers with every word that you're saying. Beth, this is what this section is all about. This is what we do (laughs) in this part of the show. (laughs) Oh, what have I done? So in this finale, the rescuers basically have to rescue themselves. This is about rats invading the embassy. An army of rats invade the embassy where the oh. Rescue Aid Society is headquartered, leading to a fierce war between mice and rats. And a third party, I wasn't expecting this, 
a little bit of a crossover with a different Disney film. In the world of the Rescuers books, toys are alive. What? Okay. So one of the main characters, basically the third lead in this, the sort of Orville of the piece, is a bear, a teddy bear called Algernon, who's <laughs> Bernard's best friend. Is he also in the battle with the rats? Oh yeah, he's heavily involved. He's wielding a, a large spear that's made from a pencil with a, a sharp pen nib taped to the end. Algernon the teddy bear. Wow. Uh, there's another teddy bear called Nigel, and there's a giant snake called Khalil from the Snake and Ladders board. Nice. Great names, at the very least. Yeah. So you know in, yeah. in Snakes and Ladders, where like there's always that one snake right at the end that takes her all the oh, way yeah. to the beginning, and that's Khalil. Is there a sentient ladder? I just have to ask. Hmm? <laughs> no, no, that would have been Khalil's nemesis, yeah. <laughs> so they all get involved on Team Rescuers fighting against the rats. Bernard rounds up a posse of vigilantes, that's a quote, who are armed to the teeth, and they tie a bunch of pen nibs to a bunch of sticks and just go and stab loads of rats. <laughs> so again, I quote, many a pen nib found its mark in rattish vitals. Wow, whoa. What? Just slicing through rat organs. That's what Bernard and his mates are doing. Bianca is sort of involved throughout, but she sits out the battle. She's too much of a lady for that. Another one, a vigilante with his pike broken short rammed the butt down his assailant's throat and ere he succumbed himself had choked a rat to death. Oh my god! This is so out of keeping with what this movie is. This movie ends with Bernard finally proposing to Bianca happily ever after. I'm glad we didn't get the rat battle with choking rats and people being stabbed. A lot of pens and pencils being used as weapons here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you meet some fun characters, though. There's some um, great names among the rescuers, among the mice that we don't meet in the movies. There's one called Peter Pickcrumb. Ooh. He picks up little crumbs. Sure, proofs in the name. Yeah. There's one called Old Rolly Cheese Hunter. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't that great? That's crazy. Yeah. Both perish on the battlefield. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're joking me. Both are killed. There's a funeral for Peter Pickrum and Rolly Cheese Hunter in the last chapter. They're widows sobbing. Oh, God. I'm not I making any of this up. I was going to say that sounds made up to me, Sam, <laughs> to be honest. It's completely true. When you say you went to the British Library... <laughs> <laughs> Did you fall asleep and have a big dream? <laughs> a little cheese dream. Yeah, that sounds like a dream that you had. So I think Bernard and Bianca are much more just like friends, like close friends in this. I don't think they get engaged. It, it ends with Bernard and Bianca settled down together in peace and friendship, of which they were both glad, having by this time had their fill of excitement. So they kind of retire from rescuing because they're like, yeah, that was enough. <laughs> their fill of excitement and their fill of stabbing rats to death. Oh my god. I mean, I I am a fan of platonic friendships existing earlier in the Disney kind of series. It did take a bit too long for that to kind of manifest. But that said, as then rightfully said, Bernard and Bianca are a couple girls. Yeah, I mean, they're both united in their crimes at this stage, their rat murders. It was self-defense, I guess. The rats were definitely the instigators here. So that's how those books go harsh harsh stuff I mean, yeah i'm glad they ignored that okay then sam you've you've kind of hinted through this episode that this film was not a massive success but before we get to the box office what did the critics say did people like this movie when it first came out critics were kind of middling on it 
Oh, a good review from the LA Times who said that it challenges the adventure films of Spielberg and Lucas and confirms the special power of animation to present extravagant fantasies on screen, which I think kind of chimes with what you were saying, Beth. Like the big appeal of this is the fantasy of flying on a giant bird's back. And it's something that Tom Cruise aside can only really be done in animation. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But more negative takes from Variety, who said it, it had reasonably solid production values and fine voices. Too bad they're set against such a mediocre story that adults may duck, which is a weird turn of phrase. There's so many weird turns of phrase in these reviews. Adults may duck to escape the story. Swooping down like Tom Cruise on a bird. Yeah, so just generally kind of middling to negative across the board. New York Times said it was a trifle dark and uninvolving for small children, and it had a strange melange of styles. I think, weirdly, none of these reviews mentioned the film's real selling point, which is its groundbreaking visuals. It doesn't look like mm. any... Like, how were these people not as blown away as we were watching this? Like, it doesn't look like any Disney movie that we've seen to this point. This wasn't something that was really pushed in the marketing either, and maybe it should have been. Maybe it would have done better had it been come on then put us out of our misery what are the numbers on this one it, it was not a box office hit was it it did extraordinarily poorly it was easily the biggest bomb that had since the black cauldron probably up there with the black cauldron is like the worst disaster in modern disney history and wow. um, it made 27 million dollars domestic 47 million worldwide that's less than a quarter of the little mermaid that's less than oliver and company less than basil even less than the original rescuers 13 years ago unadjusted for inflation really did badly it did worse than um, the ducktales movie that they brought out earlier that year treasure of the lost lamp and it did worse than the jungle book re-release oh my god <laughs> the reissue in the jungle book and it's beating the rescuers it? it's like why why are we even making movies if they're not outgrossing our 30 40 year old classics so, okay there's two big reasons for this one Home Alone came out. It came out the same week as Home Alone. Another John Candy movie, which was an absolute juggernaut. And like, it's Katzenberg's job to know things like this, right? He's supposed to have his finger on the pulse. He, this can't have been a surprise to Katzenberg that Home Alone was going to come out and be a massive juggernaut. Like, that must have been something they could have forecasted. It's almost like they just didn't really care. So Mermaid was such a big hit and Beauty and the Beast was in production. It's like the decision had already been made that this is what Disney movies are now. And The Rescuers seems a bit anachronistic in a bad way, rather than a pleasant throwback like those musicals were. So when it had a really bad opening weekend against Home Alone, Katzenberg, who'd already pulled back a lot of the production after he lost confidence halfway through, pulled all of the marketing. So any adverts on TV, in magazines, anywhere that were going to come out in the weeks after The Rescuers release was gone. The studio just wasn't behind it. And Mike Gabriel, the director, is quoted as saying, it haunted me because when the film came out and nobody came, I just thought, what did I say when the first told me that they were going to do a sequel to The Rescuers? Those were the first words out of my mouth. Why would you make a sequel to this? And, you know, we were kind of talking about it. Like, it does feel a little bit outdated. The original Rescuers movie, kids didn't really remember it that much. It wasn't like they were making a sequel to a huge contemporary hit that was going to be an easy money and i think home alone was just that final nail in the coffin unfortunately just another victim of kevin McAllister. there's been there there were many <laughs> many throughout those home alone movies but okay let's get on to our thoughts very quickly beth what star rating are you going to give this have you still got that childhood affection for the rescuers down under i think i am just so biased <laughs> by this 
film it's I am just so it would be as if my own I would be more critical of this film if my own family were in this film <laughs> because I've, I've always loved movies movies have been just like intrinsic to my life and this was one of the first films I ever watched one of the first films I ever loved and a film that just opened up the possibilities of animation to me, which is even an even bigger deal than me being like, oh my God, look at that massive bird. So <laughs> I have to give it just the, the biggest rating I could give it. It's just such a personal film and it's not problematic really. You know, you, you go back and over time, you can you can look back on things. Definitely the princess films, as I said earlier in the, in the podcast, but you look back at this and, it maintains that purity. It maintains those simple messages just bolstered by some of the most breathtaking animation that I had um, ever seen. So, yeah, I just can't fault that film. You know, Cody's a bit annoying. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now you've put that agenda out there, Ben. Yeah. It will always have a very special place in my heart. My cat is running across the room and um, here she is. Here comes Risky, <laughs> a special guest appearance from Risky the Cats. Who, yeah. What are her thoughts on the rescuers down under? Is she a fan? Fleeting, she says... Just with her eyes, that if she could ride atop an eagle to a majestic sunset, then she would do that. With Tom Cruise, sorry, yeah, you did say risky. With Tom Cruise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what about you? What's your star rating on this one? Yeah, good movie. I'm probably going to go like three, three and a half. It's not 100% top mark. I don't have that like really deep childhood affection for it, unfortunately. But yeah, it's a good one. It looks beautiful. It's really important historically because of what it's doing tech-wise. But I do think it, on its own as a movie, visually, it brings something new to the Disney table. Yeah, story, pretty by the numbers, but definitely those environmental messages hold true today. Joanna was great. Wasn't expecting to love Joanna as much as I did on rewatch. Uh, yeah, good movie. Yeah, I think I'm in the three and a half camp as well. The action adventure stuff feels really fun. I wish we had a bit more Bianca and Bernard because they are the heart of the story here, the emotional heart, and I wanted a bit more of that. But there was some really thrilling animation here. That opening sequence is so exhilarating. And for me, I was like, ooh, the big bird. Love the big bird. Love a mythical bird. So I got something out of this film. And now that brings us to the section of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, except maybe in the case of The Rescuers Down Under, it is, because even though there is a world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, and there's a whole universe out there for each character, I don't think there is much of one for Rescuers Down Under, is there, Sam? What is the lasting legacy here? It's basically nothing. This is the most I've ever struggled to pad out this section. I had to dig pretty deep and mention things I usually wouldn't bother mentioning <laughs> with another movie, but we've got to give it something. So House of Mouse, I always turn to House of Mouse when I'm struggling. Did you ever watch House of Mouse, Beth? No, I did not. It's a TV show, it's a cartoon where Mickey Mouse runs a club, basically, and the Disney characters kind of perform like... Goofy's the waiter 
daisies on the door, that kind of thing. And all the Disney characters from all the movies are there. And in one episode, extremely briefly, McLeach gets into an argument with Stromboli from Pinocchio. And that's it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's, it. That's, that's all of the Rescuers' representation in that show. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, Wilbur. Sorry, Wilbur is, is extremely briefly in the background of one episode to the point where I had the name of this episode, I found it on YouTube, and I watched the whole episode twice, and I couldn't find him. And I had to <laughs> look it up where he was, and he's just there in the background, uh, Wilbur. Wow. Okay. So, another little thing in the... Okay, well, I don't want to spoil Fantasia 2000 too much for Ben, but there is a sequence in that movie based on Noah's Ark where the animals go in two by two and Frank the lizard is representing the <gasps> Phil Neck lizard community yes. and he's found a partner he's found a, a lady lizard to escape the apocalypse with that's heartwarming so that's nice well we're really scraping the barrel here aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> last but like pretty least tiger electronics right they make the little lcd games oh yeah it's like a little game that's just that game it's not like a game boy it's one game and you press a couple of buttons and the little black and white characters move across the screen uh, there was one of those for a lot of disney movies there was one for rescuers down under where you have to play as bernard and jump over crocodiles to rescue cody and as the blood says a unique play feature allows you to complete the rescue every time while still competing for maximum score so what that means is you can't lose you can't let cody die (laughs) (laughs) the game is programmed as such that no matter what happens you always save cody it's just a matter of how many points you get while you're doing it there's a button that says jump there's a button that says move and there's a button that says rescue i think that really sums up (laughs) These characters, right? Bernard and Bianca, we've got a button that says There's rescue. A button that says rescue down under. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so yeah, that's it. There it is. The lasting legacy. What little lasting legacy this movie has, other than in Beth's heart. <laughs> that is it for this week's class. Beth, have you enjoyed joining us in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? It's been cosy. It's been unexpected in places. But thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry that we've sullied this film with images of rat murder. Uh, but it's been <laughs> a joy to have you joining us. And to make me think differently about this film, some of the things you've said have kind of really added to my experience. And just hearing how much this film meant to you as a child... It warms it to my heart even more. So yeah, thanks so much for for coming and joining us. Join us again then for our next seminar as we head back into princess territory once more, talking books, brilliant songs, beauties and beasts in, well, Beauty and the Beast. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, we'll fly you anywhere you want to go on Albatross Air Services. We have a pretty good hookup with those guys, two excellent pilots ready to take you wherever you want to go. For now, though, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye, mate. Is that a thing? Goodbye, mate. Good day. That was all right. Good day. Goodbye. I don't know if, if there's an equivalent goodbye to good day. Good night. Anyway, it's also goodbye from Beth. Bye, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. No more Aussie accent. Come on, one more time. Goodbye, guys. Yay! (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. Have a bloody good evening. Thanks for listening to Disneyversity. I'm off to go and, I don't know, find out what happened to Orville. Catch you next time. Bye.
Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.